Hello, welcome to the Palladium podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, editor-in-chief of Palladium. I'm joined today, as usual, by Ash Milton. He's hey, our everyone. managing editor. Good to be back again. So this week, I've been moving. Uh, a few days ago, I was in California. Now I'm in Vancouver. The show went on, as a show must go on. So uh, we had a good topic of the week this week. I was not involved in many of the discussions. So some of this is going to be new to me, but Ash and I are going to have a good discussion about the crisis of humanism. Um, one of our writers, Charlie Smith, wrote this great article about uh, a very long article about uh, man's place in the world and and the nature of modernity and and whether whether we need to sort of move beyond the idea that that man has control of his own social destiny and and some related ideas there. Ash, can you summarize that uh, that article and then we'll use that as a jumping off point into this general set of ideas about sort of the place of man in the cosmos and the place of man in society and how we should think about these things and how we should, yeah, where, where should we place ourselves if we're not the center of things? Sure. So the original article is called Confronting Modernity Means Overcoming Humanism. It's a, it's a longer piece. Uh, it's pretty theory heavy. It got a great response. I am not going to review the whole thing here because people can read it for themselves. But the basic proposal here is that there is a crisis of humanism and that crisis is that humanism basically deceives us as to the nature, not just of the world generally, but even of modernity. Humanism proposes that humans have a large amount of control over the world, or that at least it is potentially possible for humans to be the major controlling force in the world. This is a goal that society should orient themselves around. It also looks at things like industrialism or war or modernity or different aspects of technology and proposes that the human lens is the one that informs us about what's going on. You know, the logic in something like a global market is basically just the logic of human actors. And the article is a critique of that position that proposes that, in fact, humans do have far less control than we like to believe. Far less control is even possible. In fact, the more complex our society has become, the less control we actually have over the world. So it's actually a negative relationship between the two. Now, I'm going to basically just focus on two more object level results that we can draw from this. First, there's the idea that human beings, rather than thinking about the world fundamentally through laws, through very precise models, should rely more on heuristic thinking. I'm sure a lot of people listening have read or listened to Nassim Taleb, for example. People like John Gray have kind of given these sorts of criticisms as well. They're both mentioned in the piece. And the idea is essentially that almost more pre-modern epistemologies, looking at the world as forces that we can't necessarily know completely, but that we can maybe develop useful rules about, could actually be the more sustainable way, both for an individual and a society, to think about the world. The second thing is that when we look at these higher level phenomena, we've discussed a bunch of these before, right? Science, modernity, capitalism, industrialism, and so on. Rather than assuming that humans are at the center of the story, a useful analytic technique might be to decenter the human perspective, to decenter the human agency in the thing. Obviously, the idea that humans are acted on a lot by these things is not new. 
our species is conditioned socially, it's even conditioned biologically by these things. But in that case, you can lean into that perspective and view something like uh, one of the examples given in the piece is the machinic phalanx, uh, so the development of industrial conflict on the battlefield. And Delanda looks at this phenomenon and treats humans as part of the system rather than the central agency in control of the system. And when we do this, a lot of interesting things start to happen. The, the kind of weird, surprising conditions that seem to arise without anyone really wanting them suddenly start making more sense. This is what we would expect if humans are not actually in control, if there's a sort of autonomous phenomenon happening. And of course, the most radical expression of this would be to propose that humans can even become dispensable to the phenomenon. So that's the quick summary of the piece here. Wolf, do you want to weigh in a bit on the general perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much I have to say about the general idea. We'll, we'll sort of get into that over the course of this podcast as we figure out where exactly we want to go with it. But one immediate thought that I have is on this idea of heuristic thinking. So there's two contrasting approaches to epistemology or, or just a responsive engagement with the world. One approach is, I don't know if it has a name, but these things may in fact have names, but one approach is, is what you might call a highly controlling approach or, or an approach that tries to contain all the, all the fundamental or, or all the important factors in the world. So you come up with a model that, that includes all the important feedback loops in, in itself. You sort of understand all phenomena. You understand that your sort of whole important scope of existence, your scope of action, what you're accomplishing, what your purpose is, kind of like extending your consciousness out to the maximum extent in terms of how you engage with the world. And, and that, that characteristic of, of scientific modernity it's characteristic of a lot of rationalism and and it's it's this sort of totalizing consciousness and then the other approach which is i think what charlie's getting at with this idea of heuristic thinking and what taleb is getting at with heuristic thinking is rather than seeing it as a problem that you want to completely understand and then solve rather you're seeing you're seeing your kind of engagement with the world as a a small piece within a much larger system you don't necessarily know that larger system and you're trying to design or embody robust responses to to things that happen to you like the basic logic here is that you you can measure the, the result of something happening in the world the way it affects you it's not just so much just the result like like taleb gets into all this stuff about anti-fragility and so on which is about sort of you know, if if reality throws a bunch of unknowns at you or throws a bunch of stuff at you, what do you expect your response to be? And is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Do you get ruined? Are there ways that you're able to take advantage of the upsides and and exclude the downsides? There's the heuristical approach and then there's this this rationalistic uh, containing approach. And like heuristics, it's something that we do in math. Like I'm sort of familiar with mathematical examples where you kind of make assumptions about the world around you. You say, okay, I can bound the behavior of the world around me with some confidence. It's, I, I'm going to assume that it sort of uh, fits this shape, even though I don't know that it fits that shape. So this is something like 
you linearize like local linearizations of your your surrounding environment you say okay i'm going to assume that the the local dynamics are linear and then that enables me to kind of solve this very limited problem of of engaging with with a linearized local environment even though you might even know that the thing is not linear but but you've designed this simple robust system that that handles a, a, a certain a certain subset of the problem and if you just do that you're actually going to be fine and it, it that's that's basically uh, you're not trying to expand the consciousness you're just having a very small machine a very small like set of a, a heuristic basically that that you know uh, by various meta reasoning is going to be robust. That's that's I think the core of this heuristic approach. I think part of the reason that the heuristic thing is important is basically that it's not just that there are two epistemologies at play here or that there are two strategies for interacting with the world. I think it's in part that a lot of the times when we look at how a complex system or an institution in our world actually works, it turns out that heuristic thinking is more present and fundamental than the, the story that the thing likes to tell. So finance, obviously, which is Talib's background, you know, you, you read interviews, you talk to people in the financial world, and it becomes clear, right, that the, ro the role of gut instinct is very important. That's not new either, right? Animal spirits are something that Keynes talked about uh, decades and decades ago in economics. There is this role that emotion and instinct has, especially in crisis periods. Another concept from the piece that's probably useful here is liquid modernity, right? So there's this idea that different aspects of modernity tend to take traditions and institutions and norms and connections between people that have existed for a long time and disrupt and destroy them in order to turn people into units that are more easily fitted to different parts of the machine that can update as quickly as possible. And so the problem is that heuristics don't work as well when you have a highly complex system that is changing extremely quickly. Certain things probably do come up still, but this is not just like a very simple return to the tradition because the conditions that most of our traditions evolved in no longer exist. What's being proposed here is that in the highly complex world of modernity, I mean, maybe there are some heuristics that still work, but we basically rather than coming up with these complex models to try and predict the future, be it markets or pandemics or class dynamics in a society, we should basically be radically open in an empirical way to looking at what's going on, to not think that we can necessarily predict what's going to happen, but instead to figure out what social institutions, what social forms are the best way to survive uncertainty. And that's something that I think is not instinctual to our worldview or to our institutions. I think control is the general default. We're seeing it now, right? In in you have these two weird currents in our society right now where one response to the pandemic has been, we can't control these things. We need to not fear death so much. We should be willing to take risks because we need to have the basic norms of a society. And so this embraces risk in a way. But I, I think it kind of does so on a very instinctual level. I don't think there's a, lot, there's a lot more to it than that. The other way, this is maybe the technocratic mindset, is that, oh no, we have this chaotic event. We need to expand control to a drastic level. We need to maintain, I mean, I don't think anyone's imagining that, you know, contact tracing apps and this sort of thing are going away when the pandemic is done. 
when you implement a mechanism of control because you're afraid of uncertainty, it is going to stay there. And I think that the criticism here that's important is that actually the justification that's being made that by having a lot of control over society, we can be better prepared for chaotic events is wrong because actually complex, highly controlled systems are really bad at surviving chaotic events. Well, this is an interesting, I mean, there's like an interesting kind of uh, sheer with reality here. Like in, in the societies that I expect to kind of be quite robust to these, these types of disasters and others, which are broadly the modern Asian societies, they're, they're both doing these highly controlling things, like actually successfully implementing contact tracing and so on, um, and likely to be the ones that survive. And in the West, where it's like the debate is mostly about, you know, we've had lots of lots of sound and fury about the thing, lots of political fights and so on. The actual result in terms of actual control of the situation is like nil. Basically, we've shut down a bunch of stuff. Maybe that helps. I don't know. Like it might not even help, right? Um, we've shut down a bunch of stuff. It's been fairly expensive, but the shutting down itself has been pretty half baked. I've never ever run into any enforcement of of any of this, at least in America. I mean, I've just I've just sort of had the experience of crossing the border into Canada, and I'm now on quarantine for 14 days because the Canadian government implemented a a more serious measure and and is is being quite serious about it but but in america it was like yeah i guess you should probably wear a mask uh we're gonna hit you with a bunch of propaganda about masks and you know maybe someone's gonna scream at you on the street but you're never gonna see a cop or interact with a cop about this you're never gonna people are still gonna be do going about their business outside in a relatively uncontrolled fashion and that's that's interesting to me that that our narratives of, of control and so on are a little bit distinct from what's actually happening. What's actually happening is we have very little control over the thing. We're not even exerting control over it. There's a lot of talk about control, but no one's actually doing control. And then you look at these societies that are actually implementing more serious controls where they're tracing everybody, doing, doing temperature checks and everything uh, at every opportunity. Etc. Etc. Those are the societies that I expect to actually be handling modernity very well because I think the key thing here is they have this key property, which is intelligent responsiveness. Right? They actually have someone in place in the government or elsewhere governing things that those people are able to look at the situation and say, "Okay, what's appropriate here?" and then do that. And so. This is maybe a way that I actually disagree with the premise that we're losing control of society. Um, I remember we had our internal discussion with Charlie and and with the Palladium members. And this is a point that I brought up. The, the point is basically, we shouldn't assume that, you know, society is becoming more complex. Modernity is becoming more out of control because of the inherent features of modernity. And we're going to necessarily not have control of the thing. Rather, I think what's actually happening is in the West, governance is getting particularly bad. And in the West, we're getting particularly out of sync with reality and our social ideas and so on. And it's it's a particular decay, not 
not a a it's not an uncontrollable reality it's a it's a failure of engagement with reality and so that's kind of like an alternate frame on this is actually modernity in the future is is very controllable maybe even increasingly controllable as we scale up our intelligence surveillance and control apparatus as a society but right now in the west we have this phenomenon going on broadly elite decline general social decline things breaking down things not really working anymore things being unmoored from reality and that that might be a particular historical condition of of like senescence of a society rather than any kind of universal um, fact about the future I, like to just cap this off this leaves the post-humanist philosophical strains in something of a weird position because to just put the sharpest possible point on it they're possibly cope right like they are taking the world that we subjectively inhabit but not objectively inhabit and, and trying to come up with a come up with a, a convincing rationalization for why our subjective reality which is loss of control is actually an objective necessary reality where in fact it's it's not objective or necessary it's just that we are increasingly bad and and like losing control of our environment because because we're just unvirtuous and and so this is this is an interesting take on the whole thing as a counterpoint to the post-humanist yeah i i want to kind of critique the yeah i, I want to critique that point a bit i don't think that the post-humanist frame entails that modernity let me put it this way there's a lot of critiques of, of modernity or industrialism or these kinds of things end up with the conclusion that it's all gonna fall apart right the the, the you know either climate change or the crisis of capitalism or you know any number of other things are gonna happen and the whole thing will be revealed to be a sham like it's just contradictory it's illogical and so it's going to fall apart and we'll you know go on to another stage of civilization or we'll return to primitive society or whatever it is i don't think that the post-humanist critique entails this i think that you can have this frame one of the tendencies that that is referenced in the piece is a very hardcore accelerationist lens on modernity where actually modernity is working just fine it is its logic is playing out as it's meant to it is becoming stronger and more efficient the point is that our institutions our societies are being conditioned by it these apparent controls that we have i think i think this is something right we've discussed this in various ways on palladium samoboria had his recent piece on the centralizing power of the internet I think there's this kind of general theme here, right, where we come up with with technologies, we come up with with social changes, social revolutions, and in a lot of cases, they never quite seem to pan out the way we thought they would. In some cases, like the internet, they actually pan out in the opposite way, where we think in the 90s we're going to get this, you know, digital cypherpunk liberated society of, you know, individuals, borderless world. And in fact, what we end up having is stronger nation states, we're more legible to nation states, we're more centralized, we're more controlled, and so on. And so if you take the idea that actually the major thing to look at here is not the way that humans are using the technology, but the logic of the technology 
and use that to predict what humans will do despite their own desires, that is the application of the frame here. And what that means is you can have you can have a society that is, you know, quote unquote, doing modernity well. You can have a society that successfully manages to build the surveillance state and all this kind of thing. But the I think the claim being made here is that insofar as those things are working, it is not necessarily because we've understood what's going on. It's because we've managed to react extremely well. And those are two different things. So, okay, I, I want to dispute the idea that the internet did something we didn't expect or want. What I'm seeing here is a gulf between what we actually want and what we're actually doing and what our discourse says we want and what we say we're doing. When I think about the internet, who built the internet, who used the internet, for what purposes were those things done? Even even like subjectively, why do we use the internet? Why do we have the internet? Well, the internet was built as a defense research project to kind of connect up all the universities uh, in, a, in a way that is robust to kind of, you know, national security threats like getting nuked or whatever. But it's it's about connection, right? Is we're going to connect up a bunch of systems to become stronger. We're going to create more internal connection. And then following on that logic, that just continued. We're going to connect up more of the world and we're going to all communicate. It's it's going to make all of us stronger and it's going to make in particular the the big players who are sponsoring this and going in on it stronger because they have more communications they have more ability to, to facilitate communications. And when we think about the individual user, why does the individual user use the internet? Well, they use it to connect, right? They use it to connect to other people, to services, information, whatever. And in that sense, the internet is doing exactly what we have signed up for, right? It's connecting everything. And there are some features of that that we didn't expect. There's always some features that you don't expect in any project, even if you're fully the agent in charge of it. There's always features that you don't expect, right? You do your experiments, things come out maybe a little bit different than you expected. But the broad intention of what we've been optimizing for and what has actually happened is basically identical. Now, the the other side is that we have all this like liberal mythology about the internet and public discourse mythology about the internet. Yeah, it's decentralizing. You know, it's breaking down systems of control, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, all these kinds of things. What I'm seeing there is not, oh, yeah, modernity is escaping human control. What I'm seeing is modern public discourse is systematically retarded. And I, I've sort of run into this issue before where you know, like slowly dawning on me that the entire idea of public discourse might be a bad one, that a lot of things in society, the real information, the reality of what we want and what we're doing and how to do it is in these very local actions and local estimations and local judgments, not in the collective sort of uh, pseudo consciousness of, of public discourse. And even the very existence of public discourse systematically promotes in, in, a, in a sort of McLuhan sense, like the medium is a message, it, it systematically promotes a sort of totalitarian approach to reality and approach to society. Because it's like, okay, we're going to include everything in this big discourse. And then 
decide all together on what must be done about every little thing. It's this very rigid, centralizing mode, this, this idea of public discourse. And I just noticed that, first of all, that's often a very bad way to deal with reality. Second of all, uh, it's actually a really bad way to even think about reality. Uh, and and it, it ends up systematically diverged from what's actually going on, how society actually works, what we are actually doing, even as fully capable agents, the thing we say we're doing and this discourse thing, like once you separate discourse from uh, once you break through the myth that discourse is what's actually the reality of our intentions and what the, and the reality of what we're doing, you realize that discourse is actually just this thing off to the side. There is the reality of human society which we are actually engaging with as, as, as agents, uh, collectively and individually. And then there's this thing off to the side, which is sort of talking about that and talking about itself, which is discourse. And discourse's impact on reality is sort of, and, and reality's impact on discourse is somewhat incidental. And, and so this is a frame, a, a frame that I've been playing with, that the problem here isn't that humans aren't in control or isn't that like society is hard or, or anything like that. It's, it's just that we have this mythology of public discourse that has been built up, which is actually very false. I don't think that the discourse problem here is actually the thing that's, that's going on. I don't know if it's useful for understanding this. I mean, yeah, there is this basic point that most people are not participating in a great conversation. No, it's, it's, no, even, I, I think like most people are participating far too much in a great conversation. The whole idea of the great conversation is what it's, is this thing that, that I'm critiquing, like that that is. That, I don't idea. think it exists. I, I don't buy that there is a great conversation at all. No, but we have all these ideas. We, we in fact have, we, we in fact have this like incredible logistical achievement, which is everyone having single up opinions about like what the internet was supposed to do which also systematically diverge from reality all in the same way which and also systematically diverge from our own intentions in using the internet i don't think that the opinion yeah okay sure you can go on on twitter you can go on forums from the late 90s and see a bunch of people talking about these things i think that the thing that determines the di you know the kinds of technologies the kinds of political decisions that are getting made are, you know, discourses, if you want, among very small groups of people. What I think is more important is that actually, even a lot of people who were working on different aspects of how the internet was rolled out, had this ideological idea about it, that was very different from the actual logic. So you're correct, like, obviously, you had the military, you had people in the intelligence community, and so on, working on, you know, how the internet was being implemented. And maybe their idea of how it should work ended up being slightly more correct. But I think the important thing is that the, the way that these things have played out where, you know, uh, accessibility of data leading to easier data dumps, like the amount of effort having to be put in to discipline things like social media to bring them into alignment with the political players. It's even if you take the basic view that there are a small number of institutions that are working on the internet and that are working on how it's going to be rolled out in society and maybe everyone else having this you know delusion about a free internet is you know maybe their opinion on it was irrelevant but i think even those with the most control over it and those who had you know the, the power to decide how it was going to be rolled out ended up not really being in control of it in the end and this is why now we have this super chaotic 
response where we have conflict between DC and Silicon Valley, where where we have these this pressure on Twitter and on Facebook and on Amazon to start cooperating more with the political power. Uh, It's why you had British intelligence, for example, disciplining newspapers for publishing information that was leaked. Even if we completely abandon the myth of discourse, a lot of the decisions being made here are reactive in nature. I do not get the sense of anyone's master plan having worked in the way that they thought it would. We do not seem to be able to make master plans for big social transformations. And the the response, the posthumous response is obviously, well, that's in the nature of these things. And so you should not try and make those master plans and trying to understand society or trying to make social goals, thinking you can do that is going to end up harming you and harming your authority. This is this is kind of what I'm getting at with my discourse comment, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to reiterate it. I I think like when you say that you have these people actually working on the thing, like let's say people actually in a position of power over over how the technical decisions get made, the technical strategy and so on. I'm saying within that person there is the discourse and then there's what they're actually doing. And the discourse is is this thing about describing what you're doing, ideological motivations and so on. They have all these dreams of various things. What I'm saying is those are not actually connected to the reality in the sense that those are not even driving the actions being made. And if you look actually at the actions the person is taking and say what part of their worldview is driving that, then you get, I think, a different picture. And you get that the internet, the actual intention embedded in the thing, like not the intention that the guy had sort of off to the side when he when he was off work hours, but the intention actually embedded in the device is I'm going to make a really awesome technical medium for communication. I'm going to make something really robust. I'm going to make something that connects this point to that point. I'm going to make something that, that moves information from here to there. I'm going to make something that makes my employer happy so that I get paid. And oh, look, my employer is like the military or the state or this company or whatever, right? And I, like what I'm getting at is for all our bluster about having these grand ideas of of like planning i'm saying that so maybe this is this is like the synthesis point is like these grand ideas about planning that we have these grand ideologies and so on in some sense their function is propaganda like they're not actually about the reality and reality isn't about them and so like to say that yeah if you interpret them as plans none of them came to pass the plans people actually had did come to pass. Like the plans people actually acted on did come to pass. And and so this is what I'm saying is I'm trying to recover, I, not necessarily for any reason, this is just what I'm seeing. Like I'm seeing that we actually, like if you take if you take a, a, a very strict approach of assuming the discourse is real and, and then evaluating how much agency we seem to have, it, it looks like we have very little agency. But I'm saying, no, the discourse is fake. Look at the actual actions and intentions and plans people had that influenced their actions. And then you and yeah, the revealed preferences, the revealed plans, etc. Those things actually did have a lot of agency and their their plans weren't necessarily large in scope. They weren't like, oh, yeah, in 40 years, society will be like X because there was no one. There was no one making those plans. But where there were people making plans, I think they they actually were carried out. And then you have off to the side this thing, which is discourse about reality. And I think this is what Charlie is critiquing as humanism, 
humanism is this mythological frame that includes this big mythology about how we're all working together discussing all this stuff and having ideologies about how it should go like that all is like like the existence of this demon that i'm calling the discourse is like in some sense the same thing as what charlie was calling humanism it's this sort of it's a worldview or or it's a a set of assumptions about how the world works that are are kind of actually a little bit divorced from reality and so when you so if we abandon that if we abandon this this humanism or this idea this commitment to the idea of discourse i i mean again i'm using discourse in kind of a, a particular sense here but but if if we just if we if we refuse to admit the unconditional realness of discourse then i think the situation is very different but also it's not it's not particularly disturbing it's not particularly like i mean except where there are disturbing parts like the fact that we don't actually have anyone making plans and that our society is currently a mess but you have like i i think the reality you recover from this is actually we do have agency over the things that we're planning and doing and like where you actually have someone in charge of something who is trying to accomplish a particular result those things generally are able to happen. And when we look at the result of things like the internet, you see actually it is the sum of a bunch of people carrying out their little plans with their little agencies. And the things, I mean, and, and so another piece of the, like of the rejection of humanism that I think we're kind of circling around here is that when you add up all these little plans and these little agencies, the overall result is kind of its own thing. It's its own organism. And that's kind of this, the post-human philosophers are calling this sort of like uncontrolled modernity is this like added up overall picture. And, and that, that, and that, that dis and that, that is actually distinct from this thing that we call discourse and the cent like one of the central conceits of humanism is that this thing that we call discourse is the, the overall sort of teleology of of the the the, the sum society like like the society of that adds up all these little individual agencies and and i'm saying those things are actually separate the effect it intended to have proximally it has achieved that effect right but there's a disparity there right between proximate and the sort of you know what what you might refer to as the the teleological goal behind the thing there can be a sharp yeah. distinction no but there. that's that's just someone being wrong right that's not that's not like no oh, no, no. i think it, i think the, it has an implication maker. for agency because you the way that you express agency in reality is that a revealed preference is not necessarily the revelation of your full spectrum of preferences it is the it, it's through opportunity cost right you have actual choices in front of you and sometimes the choices in front of you do not line up with the the idealized choices that you would like to make. The, the reason the modern industrial society in particular here is strange is that, okay, to take your like the, the example of just being on an island, yes, you, you are obviously being kind of acted on by your environment. Obviously, you're, you're burning in the sun. You're trying to figure out what you can eat. You're you know, trying to figure out shelter and all these kinds of things. But you're the actual agent, and you're the one who can responsively engage with with the realities and thus steer but things in, in the that case you want. most of your environment is very obviously not human right to, to take the post-humanist core of this thing i think the distinction with our society is that we view most 
maybe not all, but most, or at least a lot of the social structures and institutions that we're operating in as basically being the results of human planning. And I think the point being made here is that actually our modern industrial technocratic society resembles your example here of the island far more than we've admitted. And not in the sense that modernity is fake, but in the sense that when when all of these sort of localized decisions flesh out and you get large systems of surveillance and of markets and of all different kinds of feedback, it turns out that like the conscious human agency does not end up informing it. No, no single unified human agency informs it at the top level, but on the margin, our decisions become more and more reactive to it. We are increasingly forced to make decisions based on choices that we face in a complex society that we are told is the result of the successes of human planning. But then we are in this weird scenario where not only do most people not really feel control over the thing, even governments, even powerful states like the US don't really seem to have control over the thing. A lot of the institutions that we created in, in our society were supposed to expand human choice and control, right? So markets expand your ability to choose your economic goods, to grow wealth and so on. Social liberation lets you choose your lifestyle. In each of these cases, it turns out that the myth of human individual freedom and agency, like the lie has been put to that myth. And so, yes, I think we're agreeing here. That was always a lie. Like that was never true. Yeah. But, but, but my, my, like my key claim is it's a lie, right? It's, it was, it was just some nonsense that people were told to get them to accept something. But told, told by not, who? I don't think it was a no, lie. No, but, but in it that wasn't. Sense. The point, the point is, like, if you look again at the intentions of the people actually taking the actions, if you look at society, it's like, oh, yeah, like you can wave your hands around and say, oh, yeah, society is completely beyond our control. And yet, if you look at any individual part and you say, why is it like this? And it's it's like someone designed it that way. Here's why. Or it was a negotiation between these parties and this was the result. Right. It's like always increasingly even the the story behind things is agency now it's a collaborative project society is a cumulative collaborative project so you never have one will that's defining the whole thing um you know collective or or individual or otherwise rather it's this this you know collaborative project of like all right i'm going to build this thing and then some other guy comes along and says i'm going to repurpose this thing but each time people are doing these things with intention, with action, with agency, and I would say successfully. So, um, but but notice that the logic continues, right? Once a system is created, its logic starts to deepen. Uh, what you know, when you have all of these very easy transfers of information through the internet created, there is kind of a logical structure established now, which is going to continue operating, particularly where there is a kind of interest in the system to its own expansion. So for example, governments wanting to expand legibility of their populations or you know, a black markets maybe wanting to like expand the global reach that they can have. In in each of these cases, yes, people in the system are exercising agency, but 
you can end, I, I think this is the key thing. You can end up having the logic of the system start to depart so radically from the agreement that was made. Like even, even that compromised position of what has been created, I think can be departed from. And then you end up operating essentially under a logic that you did not choose, right? Like you did not choose it with the full knowledge of what was being created. And I think that- Well, again, this comes back to the prototype problem, right? You build a prototype. It's not quite what you thought it would be. You learn from that. You do it again. You do something different. Right. But in this case, the prototype is an entire form of life, a whole society. Right. And then, right. It's like- we, I think, we did I think this, this is a much we, more radical- no, but we did. We did. Is... I don't think it's that radical. Like, I think. I think it's just like the humanistic viewpoint that, like, we're all choosing this in some kind of knowledgeable way, and it's not an iterative, collaborative process. Like that mythology is, is just dumb, and the the thing that's actually going on. Like, I'm I'm basically agreeing about what's actually going on in a way, but I'm going to flip out of my like agency promotion view in in a minute here and go into another one. But I think the the basic thing is like it's just reality this is just how reality works and it's how we engage with reality collectively and and individually and it's it's not weird it's not disturbing it's actually totally normal and we still have a huge amount of agency over it perhaps not as much as a bunch of our nonsense hand waving said we did but the actions we are actually taking we still have full agency over the things we are building we have agency over the things we are doing together, we have agency over. It's just that there's also this higher logic to the thing. But so here, here's an example of why it's radical, though, right? And we discussed this a bit in the community salon. So in, in the pandemic, what we had, especially in Western countries, was that each decision that was made, the decisions were legitimized on the basis of scientific authority. Again, that's discourse. Don't don't talk about legitimization. Don't talk about but the discourse. Get, get out of the discourse. by the legitimizing thing. Like, we can't just ignore it, even if it is a lie. And the point I'm making is not that it's true. The point I'm making is that if let, let's assume, you know, let's imagine that the, the administration and the bureaucracy and so on decided, you know what, we're going to be honest and tell people that we actually don't really know what's going on. And we are going to make a bunch of mistakes and we're going to have to update as we go. And yet, despite that, they should obey us because we have political authority. I do not think that most Western countries would have been psychologically able to handle that burden of fealty being put on them. Yeah, if you if you pop this out of like discourse humanistic mode, you just say like, okay, look at the actual material system of Western governments. The actual material system does not have the capability to issue commands without it being caught up in a bunch of propaganda about what is ultimately true about the world. And by not separating the concerns of command and epistemology, we've we've kind of misarchitected the system. Now, this is we've definitely misarchitected the system. That's definitely a flaw. I think another way I stated this previously was the, the difference between epistemic authority and command authority, or between a declarative authority and imperative authority. And and so like if we haven't actually separated those concerns, which we haven't in our in our mythology and, and in like the sort of operating system that we're running on, like if you think about this from a soft software perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, whoever designed this thing basically didn't separate those concerns. It's tangled. We have a bunch of dumb hacks because of how we've had to deal with that. 
and the system is just incapable of certain types of moves because of that lack of separation of concerns. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.